Well, my friends, we are two weeks away from the biggest day of the year here at Menham Hills Community Church, Baptism Day. I hope you're as excited as I am. I love being part of people's journey towards Jesus. I like when they figure out who he is. Maybe they wrestle with him a little bit, and we should. And then finally deciding to stop, you know, kicking the tires on faith. But instead, they decide to go all in to, to make this public declaration of an inner truth. That truth that they've decided to follow Jesus. Two in one sense answer Jesus' call of follow me with I will. Now this is an exciting day. Lives change, families change, eternities change on this day. I love seeing people emerge from the water with tears in their eyes or with fists raised at that holy moment. Now I've seen a lot of people super excited to follow Jesus' command to be baptized over the years. But maybe nobody is excited or was as excited or impatient as this little guy. Check him out. This morning, uh, we have accepted Christ as his Savior and as his Lord. And he will demonstrate his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by willingly being baptized this morning. He's been waiting on this day a long time. <laughs> and so, Jordan... Upon the profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We could all stand to be a little bit more like that kid, couldn't we? So for the next two weeks, I want to talk to you about what it is we believe, why it is we believe it, why it should matter to you, why it matters to me, and how any of that has to do with baptism. Just being completely transparent and upfront, I have two reasons for these talks. The first is that in our wonderful church, every year we have lots of folks from surrounding communities, some of the 92,962 people who live within one town of our church who don't know Jesus on any kind of personal level. We have them flow into our community for one reason or another. For some, it's because, I don't know, something bad has happened and they're trying to make sense of it and where God was. And so they come to church and they try to figure it out. For others, maybe it's because their kids have gotten involved in our youth ministry or our kids' clubs. And so they decide to give church a chance. Look, some of you showed up at, at church in the last year or two for the same reason I first showed up in church. Some cute girl told you to come. There are lots of reasons people come to church. I get that. But once a year here at Menham Hills, once a year, I, I like to think of it as, as the day of harvest. Jesus explained it to his disciples this way. He said, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Well, for me, every spring here at Menham Hills, it's harvest time. All, all of the work and the planning, the time and the preparation that goes into a year of ministry, it's all in preparation for this moment, Baptism Day. Now, I don't know why you first came to church, but if you've been tracking with us on Sundays for some time now, I hope you have moved somewhere down the faith spectrum. Ultimately, I hope you've come to believe that Jesus is who he said he is which is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. So the first reason for these talks is I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to cross the line of faith, to say yes to Jesus. Yes, I believe you are who you said you are, and yes, I will. I will follow Jesus. Now, second, second as a, a leader in Jesus' church, 
He actually left me with some pretty specific instructions. Here's what he said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so part of my role, truth is that it's all of our roles, but part of my role is to make disciples, students or followers of Jesus, and then to baptize them, to baptize them. And so reason two for these talks, just being up front, is I want to convince you that if you have come to faith in Christ, if you believe he is who he said he is, if you have crossed the line of faith in the last year or two, the last week or two, heck, in the last decade or two, but you haven't followed Jesus' command to be baptized, that you would. So let's get started. I want to look at what God told his people through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He said to them that, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. In other words, what hurts, kills, and ultimately destroys the people of God is their lack of understanding. And so this morning, I, I want to help you understand what I came to understand in a booth towards the back of the Roxbury Diner on Christmas Eve in 1986. Now, I don't know what your ch church background is, but mine growing up, well, it was somewhat limited. We went to church very religiously um, on Christmas and Easter. We were very religious about that, and usually no other times. Now, in my annual voyages to church, along with a couple of Sunday school drop-offs, what I had come to understand about Jesus was that Jesus had died for my sins, which, of course, I always thought was super nice of him. I just never understood what I had done that Jesus had to die for, and I had no real understanding of what it meant that Jesus died for my sins. I had heard it. I didn't get it until that one night at the Roxbury Diner when my future brother-in-law explained it to me. And for me, though I had heard Jesus had died for my sins lots of times before, that night it was like a switch went off. I almost felt it in my head. I got it. I crossed the line of faith. That day of harvest had come to the Roxbury Diner, and I was all in. Now, to understand what it is I came to understand, I'm going to take you on a quick trip through the Bible, and it's going to be anything but exhaustive. I want you to know that. But in the next few minutes, I want you to see how you can see what it means that Jesus died for your sins. You can see it from the beginning of the Bible. We're going to start in the first book, the book of origins called Genesis, all the way to the final book in the Bible, a book called Revelation, a book written by one of Jesus' disciples, one of his followers, one of his learners, John, as he sat in exile on an island known as Patmos. So buckle up, kids. We are in for a fast ride. Let's go. Genesis, you know the story. God creates the heavens and the earth, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the creatures of the ground, and he calls them good. Then he creates Adam and Eve to rule the Garden of Eden, and he placed them in that garden. He gives them the opportunity to join with God, with him, in the rule and reign of all of the earth. It starts as they begin to name the animals. There was just one thing God asked, and it was that they allow him to be their God. And at the dawn of creation, to that question, as evidenced by their walking in intimacy and knownness and oneness, if you will, with God and one another, they said, yes, God, we will let you be our God. But as some of you know, temptation dawned in the garden one day. And the temptation wasn't really for fruit. It was for power born out of a, a, a pride thing. 
God had said, look, let me be God, and thus I'm asking you not to eat of this one tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because that's my job, that's my role in this world to determine right and wrong, good and evil for you. That's what I am as God. In fact, this is so important for you and, and your family and your future, God would say to them, that if you eat of it, you'll die. But their pride got the better of them when the temptation came along, which said, you will certainly not die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, most of us know what happened. As soon as they did this, the scriptures say that the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. And so into this place of oneness and unity and peace comes shame and hiding and dread. So much so that they wind up sewing fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. It's kind of interesting, right? Of, of all the things that they could have done, what they decided to do was to cover themselves, to, in a very real sense, cover up their sin, to hide it, to try to make it right, in a sense. They did it with, and they did it through, their own efforts. They sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. But as some of you know, that covering, that attempt to cover their sins, it was not good enough. Because when God confronts them over what they had done, he does something, well, which had to have blown their minds. Some of you might not know this, but man in his original state, in the garden, pre-fall, pre-sin, man was created to live eternally with God on this earth. And right up until this moment, there had never been any death in the garden in the early history of the world. God had told them to not eat of the tree because if they did, they would die. But here's where the story takes a turn. They don't die. Well, at least not yet. The scriptures say that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord God did that. You see, death comes into the garden for the first time, but it does not fall on Adam and Eve. God rejects their coverings, the attempts they had made to cover their sin, and instead, God kills some of the animals in the garden, and he uses their skins to cover over the, the sin of Adam and Eve. And you have to imagine the scene, right? I mean, we clean that story up, we drop it into children's books, but the scene is anything but idyllic. Adam and Eve have never seen anything die, let alone something get killed. You have to imagine that, that blood, which they've likely never seen, blood is being spilled in the garden for the first time. And I have to imagine that they had to be thinking, what did the animals do, God? Why did they, and now listen up, because here comes some of this knowledge that we need. Why did they have to die to cover our sins? And with that story, and as you'll see, this crimson cord, I would call it, stretches through all of time. The concept of atonement is introduced in, into creation. Atonement is a theological word, but it essentially means to cover over someone's debt. If this afternoon on the way out of church, say, you back into my car, you would incur a debt to me, right? Somebody's going to have to pay to repair my car. You're going to have to atone for what you've done to me. Now, if you leave, and in your frustration, you're driving down Route 24, you, you're 
frustrated, you're driving aggressively, you get pulled over, you're going to get a ticket and you're going to have to go to court and you're going to have to pay for, or put another way, you're going to have to atone for what you've done. The atonement, the, the paying of your fine or maybe the community service you're going to have to do to make this right, what you've done to cover it over, it'll atone for your actions. And of course, atonement, think about this with me, okay? Atonement is actually only needed if there's some kind of system of justice in place. If there's no system of justice, you wouldn't need any atonement. For example, right, you hit my car, no system of justice, you just pull out, right? You don't even get out of the car. Now it's my problem. I mean, no system of justice, right? Well, then everybody say, just speeds on Route 24. There's no penalty related to the violation of the law. And since there's no penalty, you know what everybody does? Everybody speeds. And what happens when everybody speeds? Accidents increase. Innocent people die. Why? Well, because justice was overlooked. Now, here's the deal. If I were going to ask you to describe God, if I were just going to come up to you one day and say, you know, God is blank, I bet a lot of us would say that God is love, and he is. John tells us that. God is love, and he is, but that is not all he is. God actually has many attributes. And in regards to atonement, and because he is a God of love, because he is a God of love, God is also just. Psalm 89 sums it this way. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne, Love and faithfulness go before you. God is love and faithful because he is righteous and just. You know, that's where you get it from, don't you? I mean, the scriptures say that we're created in the image of God, right? And that's why you and I get so upset when we see injustice, when we experience it. When we see children hurt or abused, when we see the powerless oppressed or the, the innocent hurt, and I remember so clearly watching what happened on 9-11, right? It's almost like a guttural feeling somewhere deep inside us. Something tells us this is not okay. This must not be allowed to stand. This is wrong, and it needs to be made right. See, you got that from your heavenly Father, who is righteous and just. And he's righteous and just because he loves and he loves because he's righteous and just. And so a just and righteous God, which is the kind of God all of us want because we want justice, well, he demands justice. As a result, he demands this atonement for sin, this payment for the evil that we see laid out, well, here in Genesis, literally from the foundations of the earth, and right here, we also see a concept related to atonement laid out. Theologically, it's called the concept of substitutionary atonement. Now, we've defined atonement. Substitutionary, well, kind of speaks for itself. There's a substitute who atones. Somebody stands in the place of another. This is the answer to Adam and Eve's question. Why, God, did the animals have to die? The answer substitutionary atonement. Now, I want you to know, especially if we have some theologically minded people out there, right, there are many theological theories and debates regarding the concept of atonement. I'm not going to get into all of them in the morning. 
this morning. But we're going to trace this concept of substitutionary atonement through the scriptures. Some of you know that God, after this incident, would call a man named Abram, who would go on and be called Abraham, and he would go on actually to become the father of three of the world's great religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. And Abraham, at one point, he's called by God to leave his people in the area of the Ur of the Chaldeans to go because God's going to, quote, make you, make him into a great nation, and he's going to bless you, and he's going to make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. That's the God, that's God's promises to Abram. Which is what makes, happens, what makes what happens next, just a short time later, so puzzling. You see, God comes again to Abraham and calls again, but this time to, quote, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I'll show you. That's kind of hard to reconcile, right? To a God saying that his family will become a great nation. How does your family become a great nation if you kill this one child of God's promise? That would have been surprising to Abraham, certainly. This concept of killing the one child when it's supposed to become a family. But the concept of child sacrifice in the time in which Abraham lived would not have been all that surprising. Because unfortunately, it was all too common. In ancient times, it was often believed that to appease the gods, to, in a sense, cover over your sins or wrongs or debts to God, what the gods wanted were sacrifices. And since ultimately, if you were really trying to move them, uh, they would want you to sacrifice the thing you loved the most, and since that was your child, well then, lots of religions in the ancient times believed that you, what you must do is sacrifice your child. Again, common in most of the regions of the day. Child sacrifice was the norm. In fact, later, when the nation of Israel is brought by God to the promised land of Canaan, this is one of the practices which God tells the nation of Israel, do not let this infiltrate your faith, your community. That's how common it was in the land that he was going to give them. And so we read this and we think, how could God? Abraham think, hears it and thinks, well, I guess my God is like the other gods. And so they head up the mountain, Abraham with his son. And there's this rather famous and haunting line as they head up. Father, his son Isaac says, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, guys, you might know the story, but enter the story for a minute. Parents, can you imagine the searing pain of that question? In fact, I'm sure Abraham doesn't even know what to say, right? He probably responds with, with the only thing that comes to mind, which is, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The scriptures say that when they reached the place that God had told them that, Abraham built an altar there and, and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. And it was exactly at that moment when an angel of the Lord called out to him, stop. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
And it was also at this moment that Abraham realized his God was different from all the other gods. This God does not demand our sons and daughters to cover our sins so that we might be good enough to come up to him. His God, this God, comes down to Abraham with a sacrifice to cover over his sins. That same scarlet cord runs on in the history of God's people some of you know that what God promised Abraham comes true. He, his son Isaac would go on to have a son named Jacob, and his family would indeed to go on be, to become this great nation, uh, the nation called Israel that finds itself sometime later brutally enslaved in the nation of Egypt for 400 years. The time comes for God to free his people from their bondage. And so he comes to a man named Moses, and God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, and, and Moses should go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And of course, many of you know the story, Pharaoh doesn't listen, so, so God sends various plagues to convince him to do so, and, and he doesn't budge, so God decides to deal with Pharaoh in the only way Pharaoh will understand. The rebellion, the, the corruption, the evil that has been perpetrated in the land is, is met with justice. God says that he's going to send an angel of death over the nation to visit, to visit each household, that the firstborn of every household, Egyptian and Israelite alike, is going to die. But, he tells the Israelites, there is a way to get this angel of death to pass over them. They're to take an innocent lamb, and sacrifice it and take the blood of that lamb and, and put it on the doorposts of their homes. And if they would, the angel of death would pass over them. I'm going to see that something has died, God says, that something has, has already died, and thus death will pass over them. And so the Egyptians, well, the Egyptians, they, they don't know this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't know this God of love, and they don't understand this God of justice, so they blow this off. But the Israelites, they do know him, and they don't. They know the justice of God. And in every Israelite home that night, I can't help but wonder, as the children watch their fathers slay these innocent lambs, if the kids didn't look at their dads and, and ask a very similar question, but dad, what did the lamb do? Hmm. Some of you know the story, Pharaoh relents. The Israelites are set free. They wander for 40 years in the wilderness before God brings them into this promised land. And it's during this period where God institutes a sacrificial system so that when people mess up, when they disobey God, when they miss his mark, when they sin, what they would do, what was instituted, was a system whereby they would bring a lamb to the temple, they'd sacrifice the lamb, and it would provide a temporary covering of their sin. In fact, one of the holiest days on the Israelite calendar was called the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, it was this day annually where one goat was sacrificed as a sin offering for the people. But then there was this, there was this interesting other goat. It was a, a secondary one. It was known as the scapegoat. And on the Day of Atonement, the priest would take that goat and place his hands on its head and he would ceremonially place all of the guilt and the shame and the sin all of the gunk of the people of Israel onto that innocent goat. And then somebody would lead the goat out of the camp into the desert where it would eventually die. And as all of Israel gathered to watch this goat get paraded out of town, the priest would call out and he would tell them all to watch 
because their sins are being carried away to be remembered no more. But it cost the lives of two goats. Now, this would happen annually. It was an annual reminder for the people of Israel about the seriousness of sin and the need for it to be atoned for, covered over. And that sacrificial system, it lasts for all of the Old Testament. Yet even while it was in place, there would be prophets for the people of Israel who would speak of a future day, which, which nobody really understood. Isaiah, for example, about 600 years before the time of Jesus, he famously described that coming day this way. He says, he... He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Of course, the original audience would have been asking, who is he? And why was he despised, rejected, and why was he suffering? Similar question, right, to the ones we've already asked. In fact, Isaiah goes on, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again, with the sacrificial system up and running and well, the audience had to be asking, what are you talking about, Isaiah? Who, who is he? The punishment we deserve, well, we put that on we put it on birds and sheep and rams and lambs. We don't put it on people. What are you talking about? Who are you talking about? And no one knew. No one knew. No one understood until one day in the River Jordan, the most famous prophet of that day, a guy named John who was baptizing people in a call for their repentance, he looks up from the river and he sees Jesus coming. And do you remember some of you what he yelled out to the people gathered? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, as you can imagine, the people didn't get it. Not only didn't they get it, they didn't like it. They were waiting for a, a, a Messiah. They wanted Jesus, their Savior, to be their Savior from Rome. But Jesus came to be their Savior and their Messiah not from Rome, but from their sins. You see, Jesus told them time and time again, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He was as clear as he could be about it. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and, listen to this, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to atone for the sins of many because he is a God of love and he's a God of justice. Now, he kept trying to convince them. And maybe, maybe he's trying to convince us too. He would tell them during the Last Supper, you know, this is my body given for you. After the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You realize we celebrate substitutionary atonement every time we have communion together. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Of course, it was only hours later on a cross. Body actually broken for you. Blood actually shed for you. John tells us that Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture has been fulfilled, 
right? Everything we've just gone through and, and much more. He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He said, it's finished. What's finished? It's over. The ultimate act of substitutionary atonement, complete, the entire sacrificial system, done. No more lambs, no more goats, no more child sacrifice, no more trying to cover over our sin with our sacrifices, with our best efforts, with our works, no more trying to be good enough to earn our way up to God. No, God has come down to us. God has indeed provided a lamb. He was offered up in your place. And maybe, maybe this morning you, maybe you like all of the children in Israel, you can't help but look at this scene and wonder, but what did the lamb do? Why did the lamb have to die? Well, the answer is, because God is a God of love. He, he loves you at the cost of his own son and not yours. He is a good, holy, righteous God of justice. And you see, love and justice, they meet on the cross of Jesus Christ. Everyone's sin who trusts in this work, who believes in Jesus' substitutionary atonement for their sins, their sins are paid in full. Their debt is covered. The lamb who was slain outside of the camp on the hill at Calvary has taken them all away. You fast forward to the end of time where this God, because he is a God of love, will judge all of us. Every human being who has ever lived because he is a God of love and he is a God of justice and our judgment well, it will result in one of two things. We will either need to atone for our own sins to find a way to cover ourselves, to which God says we can't, or we will find ourselves that day with what, in what the scriptures refer to as the Lamb's book of life, because the Lamb of God bore our judgment. That Christmas Eve night in the back of the Roxbury Diner, I got it. You see, I had heard that Jesus had died for my sins, but that night I understood why Jesus had to die to atone for my sins. So I didn't. And when I got it, I said yes. I said, I will. I, I said, I give you my life. I'm going to follow you all of my days. You see, if we choose to atone for our own sins, then a righteous God will allow for it. And that atonement, the penalty due for our sins, it includes an eternity far from God. If we choose to live far from God now, we will continue on that road on out into eternity. But that is our choice. It is not God's will. Peter said that God is patient with you. He's not wanting anybody to perish, but everybody to come to repentance the choice always has been and always will be yours. Shortly after coming to Faith Act, I went back to my college campus and I met with some guys from a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. They had a, a really fascinating way of explaining this concept. They, they asked me, do you have a car? And of course I said, yes. 
And they said, well, John, let's say you're driving home this weekend and you're cruising. You go on, say, 105. You're just flying. And you get busted, man. You look in the rearview mirror. The lights are going. The cops had you on radar. You're done. They impound your car. They bring you straight to the courthouse to face the judge. But here's the good news, John. The good news is that the county you got busted in just happens to be a county in which your dad is the judge. And so you're probably thinking that you're golden. I mean, your dad loves you. He's going to let you off. Everything will be fine. But just as you're entering the courthouse that day, John, you remember that your dad is also a, a pretty good judge. He never punishes the innocent, but he always punishes the guilty because he is a good and just judge. And so now you start to get a little nervous. I mean, what, what's my dad going to do? What's going to win out? Is his love or his justice? I mean, he's your dad, and so he loves you, John, so he's going to want to do good to you, but he's a good and just judge, and therefore he's going to want to follow the law and render a just verdict. John, what do you think he's going to do? Which is going to win, love or justice? Which was a pretty good question for an 18-year-old kid. It's hard to know what he might do, right? But then they looked and they said, let me walk you through a scenario. You stand before your dad, the judge, and he, he says to your son, the this officer here says you were going 50 miles an hour over the speed limit. How do you plead, son? Well, I mean, I, I guess I would plead guilty, right? Which is a pretty good idea because they, I am guilty and I, they had all the evidence. So they explained to me that this father judge of mine looks and says, that'll be $500, John, or a week in jail. Guilty as charged and bangs his gavel. Well, I don't have any money, so the bailiff... He comes to take me away so I can start serving my time. They explained to me that in their scenario, it would be just at this moment when my dad, the judge, would stand up and say, wait a minute, bring him back here. And then he would slowly take off his robes, and walk down from beneath the bench, and he would reach into his coat pocket and take out his checkbook and write the court a check for $500, the exact amount of my fine and he would offer it to me. What's going on here? Well, it's this. He's just, so he declares you guilty, since you are, and he demands that a penalty be paid, but he loves you, and so he's determined to pay the penalty himself on your behalf. And in their story, and in ours, this father judge stands there offering you the check. What do you need to do? You can accept his payment on your behalf, or for whatever reason, you can reject it and pay the penalty your choice. The choice was, the choice is always yours. Guys, for some of you that have been hanging around the church, considering the things of Christ, kind of kicking the tires on faith, may I say to you what Paul said to those in the church in Corinth who were doing the same thing? He wrote to them, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Make this your Roxbury Diner moment. Cross the line of faith. Repent of your sins, which simply means to change your mind about the direction you're going in and follow Christ. Say, I will allow him to atone for you. And if you do, if you do, well, the scriptures are clear. This is the time to get baptized. 
because uh, it will save you. You're saved by faith through that substitutionary atonement of Jesus. But baptism is how you testify to it. It's how you go public with that decision, where you identify in front of your family and friends with the death of Jesus for you. As you descend into the water, you identify with his death, right? And as you spring out of the water, you identify with the new life of Christ alive in you. My friends, Jesus... He identified very publicly with you and your sins on the cross. On June 13th at the lake, with your church family as witnesses, it's time for you to publicly identify with him. On June 13th at the lake, you get to decide. We get to answer the eternal question. But dad, why did the lamb have to die? We each get to give an answer. One answer is, well, one answer is he died in vain because I'm going to pass on Jesus for now, maybe later. Or I'm a good person. I'm, a, I'm, I'm just going to trust in that. I'm, I'm going to try to cover for myself. There is a better answer than in vain, though. The best answer to why did the lamb have to die, the best answer, the right answer, is that the lamb died for me. And if that's your answer, I want to see you in the lake with me to make sure everybody in this town knows.